Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you here today. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Rusty, and uh, I'm on staff here at Journey, and I'm excited to be with you. Uh, just a few announcements today before we get started. Um, we have a little podcast here at the church called Divinely Uninspired that uh, myself, Jeremy, and April host. Uh, every two weeks, we release a new episode, and so this Thursday, a new episode is going to come out. Last service, uh, somebody told me that they have now decided that it's Team Rusty and Jeremy versus Team April, and uh, and so I guess I don't. Apparently, it's a rivalry now. So, um, but anyway, you can listen to that on any any whatever your podcast service you like to use uh, on Thursday. Uh, if, when you came in, you may have seen like a a, a Christmas tree shape thing of shoeboxes. That is for Operation Christmas Child, which we are starting today. Uh, you can pick up one of those boxes, fill it with gifts for, for a child in need. Um, those are due back November 14th. If you don't have time to fill a shoebox, uh, some of us are very busy, you can uh, pick up one of those brochures and pay the, the amount to have a shoebox filled and taken care of. So, um, be sure to stop out there before you leave today and pick one of those up. And again, that drop-off date is November 14th. Uh, next Sunday from 1 to 5 p.m. is Journey's Day at Shady Lane, which is like a pumpkin patch type place. Uh, if you go at those hours between 1 and 5 and you wear a Journey t-shirt, you get a free hayride. So, uh, and you'll also look pretty good because our Journey shirts are nice. So uh, anyway, anything else you might have questions or comments about, go to the app. That's where you can keep up with all of the latest information about the goings-on here at Journey. Uh, I am a big Twitter user. Um, it's my favorite of the social media platforms. I'm not a big social media guy anyways, but Twitter is my favorite. And it's not because of the breaking news. It's not because of um, people's snarky comments. It is actually because of the memes. I, I love the memes that show up on Twitter. And last year, when the world shut down, Twitter became a meme factory like the world had never seen before. And my favorite of the memes that started to show up were the ones that had one picture with the caption above it that said, my plans, side by side with another picture of a not great situation with the caption 2020. And so I have some of those today, and I changed it for 2021 because if we're honest, uh, 2021 hasn't been much better. So I just wanted to share a few of these with you um, just to kind of get your idea about, about what we're talking about today. So here's your first one. Um, this is, if you're a fan of The Office, um, this is a well-known episode uh, Kevin's world-famous chili recipe, right? This next one uh, is one that I'm sure most of us at least have some frame of reference for this. They're coming out with a sequel, which is exciting, right? Uh, I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but this next one I thought was clever, but it might take you a minute. <laughs> and then this last one is for Jeremy, not because the Packers are not doing well this year. Jeremy's a big pack. He's actually like part owner of the Packers. Um, you make a lot of money when you're a minister. And, uh, and this is just a terrible picture of Aaron Rodgers that makes me laugh. You know, so the last several weeks we've been in this series called Greater, where we're looking at how God's understanding of things, God's way of doing things are always better than our ways of understanding things in doing things. And I think that in theory, a lot of us believe that God's ways are better than ours. They're at least higher than ours. I think it's in the reality, though, that, 
the day-to-day living where we struggle accepting that as a belief. We struggle accepting that God's ways are better than our ways. And especially, especially when we have really great plans, really well thought out plans, plans that we have put a lot of time and energy into making sure that they go just right. And we find those plans completely broken into a million pieces. Plans like the retirement that turns into a cancer battle. The perfect marriage that ends in divorce. The dream job that downsizes. Every single one of us in this room has experienced and will experience times where our plans go completely off the rails. Painful, difficult, unexpected things that take our plans and turn them upside down, disrupt our lives. And I think the broader question that we all ask is why do these things happen? Why do bad things happen? Why does God let bad things happen? That's the question that so many of us have, but it's not the question that I'm going to try and answer this morning because I could fumble through some unconvincing theological answer of why bad things happen, but it wouldn't satisfy any of us. So instead, I'm just going to be honest with you and say, I don't know. Right off the bat, I don't know why bad things happen. I don't know why God lets bad things happen. In my opinion, anybody who says they know why bad things happen, or they're lying or arrogant or both, and they don't deserve to be trusted. So today, I'm not going to try and answer the question. We are not going to try to answer the question of why bad things happen. Rather, I'm more interested in the question of how we can and should respond when bad things happen, when our plans fall apart and God does something with those plans. Understanding when we have these life-changing circumstances, where does God fit in to all of it? And there are a lot of stories in the Bible about people who have these plans and these ideas about what their lives are going to look like that completely end up differently. But I can't think of a better example for today than the story of Joseph. And we see the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible. And it's a long story, and I'm not going to try and tell you his his whole story uh, through reading the text. I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version. We're going to hit the highlights. So Joseph is the son of this guy named Jacob. He's the youngest son, and he also happens to be the favorite son. And this favoritism that Jacob shows to Joseph is really toxic, and and it stirs up dissension within the family because Joseph has these brothers. And these brothers, they resent and even hate Joseph because of how much favoritism Jacob shows him. Well, Jacob goes a step further and makes Joseph this beautiful coat, and he says, you're my favorite son, this coat is yours, which makes the brothers hate him even more. On top of that, Joseph has this dream. He's big into dreams. And in this dream, his brothers are bowing down to him, and he is reigning over them as a king. And Joseph, in his egotism, in his cruelty, goes and tells his older brothers, one day I'm going to rule over you, and you're going to bow down to me. 
And they hate Joseph so much at this point that they decide, let's sell this kid into slavery. And so that's what they do. They sell him into Egyptian slavery. They run home and tell dad, hey, sorry, he was eaten by an animal. Well, I guess we just have to move on with life. So Joseph ends up in Egyptian slavery. He is a pretty responsible guy and finds himself working as a servant for this big wig in the Roman military named Potiphar. Now, Potiphar is pretty important himself, so he's not there a lot. But Potiphar has this wife who likes the look of Joseph. And she likes him enough that she decides, I'm going to sleep with this guy. Joseph, not wanting to dishonor his master, runs away when she tries this, and she accuses him then of rape. He has her thrown, or she has him thrown into prison where he meets these two guys who work for Pharaoh. They have some dreams. Joseph correctly interprets these dreams. One of these guys ends up in front of Pharaoh who also has a dream that needs interpreted. This guy says, hey, I know a guy. He's in jail. Let's go get him. He comes out. He interprets this dream correctly for Pharaoh, which is a famine is coming to the land. I'm not sure why Carol Bastian and... The Tiger King are still on screen. Uh, that's not Potiphar and his wife. Um, though, wouldn't that be awesome if it was? I would watch that movie. Um, so anyway, so Pharaoh has this dream. Joseph interprets it, which means there's a famine coming to the land. It's going to be here for seven years. It's time to prepare. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph and his correct interpretation of everything that's happened thus far that he says, I'm putting you in charge of all of Egypt, second only to myself. Now, I want to be very clear before we go through the rest of the story. Joseph didn't plan any of this. This was not what his intentions were. He didn't intend to be enslaved and work under an Egyptian slave master and then end up in Pharaoh's court. Most of these things were things that happened to him because of choices other people made. Well, once again, we're not going to try and answer why these things happened. We're more interested in seeing Joseph's response to these things happening. So to continue the story, those same brothers that sold him into slavery find themselves in a famine. And they hear that in, over in Egypt, there is lots of food. So they decide, let's go to Egypt where we can get some help. Unbeknownst to them, their little brother is in charge of all that help. So they finally see each other. And the brothers, they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes the brothers. And he recognizes the brothers because even though he may have forgiven them, we never forget the ones that hurt us. And so anyways, they have this back and forth for a few chapters before Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And he does so in chapter 45, and he says this, starting in verse 5. Do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now let's process, let's stop for a moment. Let's process this because I want to make sure that we're actually seeing what Joseph is saying here. Because it could be really easy, it would be really easy to read this, to walk away thinking, oh, God caused these things to happen to Joseph. 
That's how Joseph understands it, but that's not what Joseph is saying. Joseph recognizes that his brothers committed evil against him. Joseph recognizes that he committed evil against his brothers. They own those evil deeds. They belong to them. But Joseph, he's choosing to recognize how God worked those evil things out for good. And he tells his brothers this. In Genesis chapter 50, just a few chapters later, he says this in verse 20. Don't you see you planned evil against me? But God used those same plans for my good. And as you see all around you right now, life for many people. In her book, You Learn by Living, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt said this, the choices we make are ultimately our responsibility. Now, that seems like a very common sense thing to say, and it is, but so often we don't live that way. We don't live like our choices are our responsibility. They affect lots of people. The choices we make affect lots of other people. But we are responsible for our choices. I am responsible for my choices. You are responsible for your choices. We are responsible for our good choices that put goodness out into the world. And we are responsible for our evil choices that put evil out into the world. The choices that honor God and dishonor God. But what Joseph is pointing out here is that God can work all of our choices out for good. Now, let's be clear, that doesn't give us a license to do evil deeds. We can't justify doing evil because God can turn it into something beautiful. Even if God takes that evil deed and turns it into something beautiful, evil is still evil and goodness is still goodness. So we don't have permission to do that, but we can recognize, we can choose to recognize the same way Joseph does, that God can take plans, evil plans, poorly thought out plans, and turn them into really beautiful things. God can work in and through any terrible choice we make. There's this phrase that shows up in the Bible over and over and over again. Over 60 times in both the New Testament and Old Testament. And you've already heard this phrase a couple of times this morning. And it's so commonplace to us that we don't even think about it. But it's so simple and it's filled with so much hope. And I want to share it with you. It's this. But God. But God. Anytime you see but God in Scripture... It's a situation where humans have messed things up, where we are in lots of trouble, where we've hurt people, where other people have hurt us, but God does something with that. And he takes a really terrible situation, takes a mess, and he makes something beautiful out of it. 
Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1 says this, humans make elaborate plans, but God has the last word. Now, believing that God can use evil to work all things out for good is really, really helpful when people sin against us, when people make choices that hurt us, when we are on the receiving end of things other people do. But I want to shift gears for a moment because up until this point in Joseph's story, we've pretty much always had somebody to blame for the bad things happening. Whether it was Joseph, Jacob, his brothers, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, we've had somebody to blame. And when bad things happen in life, we always want somebody to blame. It's easier when there's somebody to blame. But what about the situations where there is no one to blame? When it's just an accident? Anybody here like to hunt? I know, I'm, not a, I'm not a big hunter. I know some people like to hunt. And deer, I know deer season's coming up. I've only ever bagged one. I think that's the right word, bagged. I think I've only ever, I've only ever bagged one deer successfully in my life. And some people like to use bows. Um, some people like to use shotguns. I used a Hyundai Sonata. And I don't recommend it. Uh, ammo for a Hyundai Sonata is very expensive. And uh, it was 2009. It was a December night. And I was, I was driving home when off of the easement, uh, a doe steps out in the middle of the road at 60 miles an hour. I was driving 60 miles an hour, not the deer. And I was a new minister. I had just graduated that previous May. I was at a tiny little church, and I had a really high deductible on a car I couldn't afford. And I was not looking forward to paying this thing. But I called my agent, and I was so pleased when my agent, agent told me, you don't own a dime on this because this was, and I quote, an act of God. God threw a deer at my car, and I didn't have to pay for it. You know, we, we, <laughs> bad things like this happen all of the time. And there's nobody to blame. It is an accident. And sometimes I think those are the hardest times because there's nobody to blame except God. And so we try to blame God, but sometimes that just doesn't sit right. So we don't blame him because he caused it, but because he didn't stop it from happening when he could have. You know, things like a hurricane flooding a city and killing hundreds of people, an earthquake that devastates an already broken country and thousands are dead, some new virus that infects millions of people and kills hundreds of thousands. We have nobody to blame. Nobody made a bad choice. Nobody put evil out into the world against us. It was something that happened, but plans were shattered. Lives were disrupted. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile those situations with who we understand God to be? I was listening to a sermon recently by Tim Keller, and he's one of my favorite people to listen to. He's just so smart, 
And if you, if you haven't ever listened to one of his sermons, I really encourage you to go, go check his messages out. But he said this in this sermon I listened to recently. Never think that God's not working no matter how much it seems like he's absent. And at the same time, never think you're going to be able to figure out for a long time what he's up to. In 2013, my wife and I were so excited because we found out we were going to be parents. I was excited. She was sick. And like, like really sick. Like multiple trips to the ER sick. She, she was so sick that they hooked her up to this pump that was constantly administering anti-nausea medicine to her. And it was, it was miserable for her. She was miserable. I was miserable for her and with her. And then suddenly she started feeling better, kind of out of nowhere. And we, we finally felt like we turned a corner. And it was around February. And it was snowy out. We lived in northern Ohio. And she slipped on some ice. And we found ourselves in an L&D labor and delivery triage unit. And with an ultrasound that showed a baby that had stopped developing about the time she stopped feeling sick. That day is imprinted on my mind. Every minute of that day, every word of every phone call I had to make. I didn't share this with last service, but actually we were supposed to be leaving that afternoon for a retreat with our youth group, and I had to call all my volunteers and tell them why I couldn't go. It was a terrible, terrible day. It was nobody's fault. It just happened. And we were so broken, our plans were completely shattered. But this past Thursday, we celebrated our oldest daughter's seventh birthday. A little girl we adore, who in all reality would probably not exist if we hadn't miscarried. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not glad we miscarried. But I see how God worked it out. My wife has had the opportunity to counsel and comfort Countless women who have walked that same exact path. It made us more empathetic. It made us more compassionate. Other people's lives have legitimately been made just a little bit better because our plans fell apart. That's that whole but God thing again. I know there are some of us here today who are suffering. You're in the darkness. Maybe it's because of choices or plans you've made, or maybe it's because of plans or choices somebody else has made, and maybe it's not anybody's fault at all, but you find yourself in the darkness. But the hope of light when you're in the darkness is the only thing that makes the darkness bearable. I'm going to say that one more time. The hope of light when you're in the darkness is the only thing that makes the darkness bearable. That doesn't mean that the darkness isn't scary. 
or painful. It doesn't mean you're not angry or suffering. But hope can coexist with those things. It's when we don't have hope that those things can eat us alive. Romans chapter 8 is one of the most hopeful chapters in the whole Bible. And when you read Romans 1 through 7, it looks pretty bleak. It's not a super hopeful book up until that point, and Paul's doing that on purpose as he writes it. But when he gets to chapter 8, he flips the script, and it becomes this beautiful story of hope and redemption for all of us. And at the end of chapter 8, in verse 28, he says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So if I could give you one thing to walk away with today, one kernel of truth, one nugget, one thing to hold on to, if you don't remember anything else about today, if you just remember this one thing, we can call it a success. And it's this. You might be suffering. You might be hurting you may not even be able to see a reason in all of it. But God and the hope that comes with Jesus can carry us. Let's pray together.